Well, hey, some of you guys have heard my voice much too much this week, and I appreciate you being here for today as well. Are you sure you want to sit that far away, you people at the back? Like, that's fine by me, but... Woo, woo! Obviously, let's whoop, because you are a long way. I can't even see you. Just see hands waving. Um, just so you know what we're doing here today, um, we are looking at the huge, massive, weighty, difficult, heavy pastoral question of how could a loving God possibly al allow so much suffering? That's what we're going to be doing. If you're not in the market for that, or if you think, no, heard it, or um, I'd like to, I thought this was a different seminar because the handbook was a bit confusing, then you can go off to another seminar somewhere else and I won't feel bad. Um, but, for, but that's what we're going to be doing in here. How could a loving God possibly allow so much suffering? And my plan is really to sketch the problem and then give you a very short answer to the question, like the shortest, simplest answer to the question that you can get. You might want to write it down. And then we'll look at the, the strongest form of the argument against and look at it at a, both a logical and an emotional level and why the, how the argument works and how it makes us feel. And I hope by the, and that, that whole thing will probably only take about half an hour and then we'll have time for a bit of questions. At the end of it, I'm, I'm going to have to dash rather than stay around and asking other, answering lots of other questions. So all those, usually after these seminars, your speaker stays around at the end and talks for ages to a clump of people. Today, I'm just not going to be able to do that because there's somebody I need to meet and then I need to go home. Um, so sorry about that. But So if you do want to ask a question, it wouldn't be a bad idea to get to one of these microphones and the red and yellow microphones down here and say the questions into the microphone if you can. Is that okay? You're all planning to still to be here after all of that? Okay, good. So our question for today is how could a loving God possibly allow so much suffering in the world? And we ran a survey in my hometown of Eastbourne. Is there anybody here from Eastbourne? Yes. Where? I got, yes, there. Okay, good. Now, we run a survey in Eastbourne where we did like a poll across the town and we gave out lots of flyers and we had lots of online ways of doing it and asked lots of people in the street and that sort of thing. And we asked, what are you, what's your biggest objection to Christian belief? And by some way, the biggest objection to Christian belief was the problem of suffering. And what we did was then, when we preached a series into that, what we did was to put up on the screen a whole load of the best objections that we received. And here is an example of just 10 of those objections that people in our town of Eastbourne gave. There were many others, but these are the, the 10 that we used in the course of uh, responding in the series. So here's some examples. One person. Does God love us all? The Bible says God is a God of love and loves us all. So why does he let us suffer with illness, starvation, abuse, suffering and many more dreadful happenings in the world time and time again sometimes enough is enough when is it going to end second objection my brother died suddenly in his sleep and I'm still left clueless sometimes I'm angry at God or upset or confused I don't expect it all to make sense but merely ask why could you cut a life so short am I being punished can God free me from suffering and pain? Is this a test in how strong my faith is? I don't understand. Third, if there is a God, why does he allow babies and children to be treated badly, to suffer disease and die? Surely children are yet to be bad or offend God. Also, why do we have to have pain and suffering? Four, I've always struggled with the question, why does God allow children to get cancer or die young in terrible accidents? Why is there such horrid suffering for some children? Five, if God doesn't like violence, why does it exist? Six, why do people suffer? Seven, why did God give us free will if he knew what the outcome would be? Suffering, poverty, and cruelty. Eight, I don't believe in a loving God because there is so much suffering and so many awful things happening in the world. Nine, my aunt who lives in Eastbourne has lost her two husbands to cancer at relatively young ages. She says she cannot believe in a loving God. Ten, and the last one for now, 
I cannot believe that a kind and loving God could create a world that doesn't have food and water shared equally, where so many innocent people are cruelly treated by evil people, where population growth is not naturally controlled, where birth itself can be horrendous, and where most animals kill to live. Surely there could have been a better eternal plan. That's just 10. We had met dozens of others. And you've probably got your own version of that, and you've probably written or said out loud your own version of that, whether you're a Christian or not. You've probably thought that question. Almost no one on this earth has not noticed that there is terrible, dark suffering in the world, and that at face value, it is in conflict with the love and goodness of God that we hear about in the gospel and read about in the scriptures. So what is going on? What is the deal? How do you reconcile those two? That's the problem. That's what we're looking at today, and it's an issue for almost everyone I know and almost everyone you know. And I think it's probably, in fact, I would even go further. I would say it's certainly the most powerful objection to Christian belief. That's the biggest problem Christians have. It's a problem of suffering. We looked at lots of problems this week, you know, about the resurrection and related to Islam and related to sexuality, lots of things. But I think much the biggest, hairiest problem that Christians have, and in fact, I think the biggest and hairiest problem that people of every worldview that there is have is the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. The reason it's so powerful against a Christian is because it combines a very powerful logical argument with a very powerful emotional appeal. They're both there. So if you take a lot of objections like, what about science? There's a logical problem there for a Christian maybe, which you have to engage with intellectually, but it doesn't have very much emotional power. Or on the other hand, an objection of sexuality right? But how can God not let me live like this or whatever? Has a strong emotional appeal, but it's not a very logical appeal. The problem with suffering is that it's both. Suffering is both a logical problem for a Christian and an emotional problem. That makes it huge. And in the next few minutes, what I'm going to try and do is three things to respond to those objections. The first, as I said, I want to give you the short answer to the question, why would a loving God allow so much suffering? Second, I want to look at the logical problem of evil, which is what some of those objectors are raising that I've just mentioned. And third, I want to look at the emotional or the visceral problem of evil, which many of the other objectors brought up. Okay? So the logical thing is, here is a logical argument from the existence of suffering to the non-existence of God. The emotional argument is, this is how suffering makes me feel about the possibility or not of God and why even if you could logically talk about him I still don't want to know because I'm hurt by him so the short answer the logical problem the emotional problem so first off the short answer to the problem of evil why would a loving God allow suffering and the short answer is do you have a drum roll? do you have a drum roll? the short answer why would God allow suffering is I don't know I don't know. And it's very important. I'm not messing with you. It's very important that that really is the bottom line answer that a Christian has to that question. I want to convince you of that. I'm not just going to say it. I'm not being flippant. I've given this a lot of thought and a lot of big thinkers have given it a lot of thought. And I think it is very important to you and me that our answer when pushed, why has God allowed this to happen must be, I don't know. I want to convince you of that logically and I want to convince you of it biblically. It is tremendously important that we say, I don't know, because a huge amount of answers have been put forward to the question, and all of them attempt to collapse a very complex problem into a very simple answer. And when you do that, you end up in a mess. So, for instance, and you may have heard these. So, for instance, some people say suffering happens because human beings have free choices. Right? Is that true of some suffering? Yes. In that... My freedom to slap you collides with your freedom not to be slapped in the face at a certain point. So for me to have freedom means to be able to do that. And for you to have freedom means for you not to be slapped. And there's a point at which those two freedoms collide. And so it is sometimes true that suffering happens because human beings have a free choice. But that is not the explanation for all suffering at all. An awful lot of you are suffering right now through choices that you did not make. An awful lot of you have had nothing to do with the fact that your parents have split up. An awful lot of you have gotten, had nothing to do with the inclinations or temptations you feel that we've been talking about for much of this week. You didn't cause them. You didn't ask for them. You've actually asked not to have them. 
and yet you still face them. And they have not arisen simply from your free choices. And sometimes things like that have not arisen as a result of anybody's free choices. I think one of the hardest types of suffering to talk to somebody about is cot death. Because you, and you've probably got friends, I have, who have lost children who just went to bed one night and the next morning the parents went to get them and they were dead. Some of you in this room, in a room this size, have probably got brothers or sisters to whom that happened. You cannot explain that by appealing to human free will. You just can't. There is no connection at all between any human decision, arguably the decision Adam made back in the garden, but no human decision about this specific thing and it having happened. You just can't. Human beings make choices and they often lead to hurt other people. Germans in the 1930s and 40s decide to persecute Jews. Jews experience suffering. That is a direct relationship between a human choice and human suffering. But an awful lot of suffering is not like that and doesn't have anything to do with any individual human choice that we know about and yet it's still excruciatingly painful. So you try and answer the question, why does God allow suffering with because of free will? You will say that's why God allows some suffering. But I don't know why he's allowed that one. That is beyond me. Or say, you say, no, all right, forget free will. Suffering happens simply because there are such things as physical laws. And physical laws are necessary for life. And that means that if I was to jump off this stage, I might hurt myself a bit. And it certainly means that when I did that sort of Klinsman dive through those balloon tents an hour ago, I got three substantial and very painful carpet burns. Both of my knees right now are in a lot of pain and so is my hand as it happens because of physical laws. Friction is a thing it's needed for the world otherwise the world couldn't be as it is. So sometimes we suffer as a result of physical laws. They have to be there and if we abuse them then we end up getting in trouble. Again, that accounts for some suffering like carpet burns but it doesn't account for all suffering by a long chalk. The physical laws in the world exist And they're the same for everybody. And yet some people suffer a lot more than other people. So you can't appeal to physical laws to solve it. Some people say instead, our suffering happens to enhance our souls and prepare us for eternity. And again, the answer is, yeah, some of it does, but not all of it. And that also doesn't explain why some people suffer more than others. Because we all need to be ready for eternity, but some people, let's be honest, live lives of relative ease. Sometimes very bad people lead lives of relative ease and sometimes very good people suffer terribly from the beginning to end of their life again people might say suffering is a consequence of our sin but again some good people suffer some bad people don't Um, so what I'm trying to do is to say all of the best one line explanations you could give to the question why does God allow suffering are limited in huge ways in their ability to explain all suffering Which is why if somebody says to me, why has God allowed this to happen? Why has God allowed me to feel this, to be tempted in that way? Why did that earthquake happen? Why did this stillbirth happen? Why did this miscarriage happen? Why did a child die of cot death? Why did my mother get cancer? Why do I feel this? Most of the questions I read out a minute ago, my answer honestly is, I don't know. I don't. And I'm not saying that to get me off the hook. I'm actually saying it to get you off the hook as well. Because I don't want you to think that there's something you could have done different and the whole world would have been happy. It may be, maybe not. Sometimes it's obvious. Why do I, why did this happen? Because so-and-so sinned. Sometimes. But often it's not. It's simply a brute fact that we as suffering people have to come to terms with. That's a logical response. Theologically, biblically, I think we have the same answer. The Bible talks an awful lot about suffering. The Psalms, full of suffering. Job, a book all about it. And suffering as a theme appears in almost every book in Scripture. But the Bible never says, oh, by the way, suffering is because of this. The Bible instead repeatedly challenges people who say all suffering is because of this. The longest book in the Bible on the, book, on the, chap- on the topic of suffering is Job. And the point of the book of Job really is, you are claiming that all suffering is because of this, you're wrong. That's stupid. It's not. Job doesn't say, and here is the answer. Job simply says, that's not the answer. And now there's that. And now there's that. And so I think I'm on firm biblical ground as well as logical ground when I tell you and you tell others, I don't know is the best answer I have. The chances are that some suffering happens because of free choices. 
Some happens because of sin. Some happens because of physical laws. Some happens to enhance our souls for eternity. And some happens for another reason that I have no idea about. Probably. But if somebody asks why God allows so much suffering, I think the most Christian answer is, I don't know. That's the short answer. Now what I want to do is take the logical problem and respond to it. So because some people on hearing me say, I don't know, would think I was conceding that the biggest objection to Christianity was actually true and logically proved that there wasn't a good God. And I now want to show why that's not true. Why it's not the case that for me to admit I don't know is the same as admitting there is no God. Those things don't follow from each other and I want to explain why that's true. The logical problem of evil, as expressed in its strongest form by people from David Hume on down and probably well before him actually, but David Hume would frame it this way and he's been very influential. Logically, okay, this sort of logical syllogism is the way it works. So Nathaniel, number one, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God would not permit suffering. That's premise number one. Right? That that's a, seems like obviously true as a statement. Statement two, suffering exists. Conclusion, therefore, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God doesn't exist. That's seriously powerful as a logical argument because the conclusion follows from the two premises and both premises sound like they're true. Right? Suffering exists, definitely. Premise number one, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God wouldn't permit suffering sounds like it's probably true as well. So it looks very compelling. But there is a huge problem. And it's a problem that is widely acknowledged by philosophers of religion and philosophers of other things as well. And that's probably the reason why the logical argument from evil is almost never used even by atheistic philosophers to disprove God. So really smart people who write in the journals never end up publishing texts now that say the logical problem of evil is true and here's why. It is largely debunked and there's a good reason for that. The problem is the argument assumes that because I cannot think of a good reason for God allowing suffering, there can be no such reason and that doesn't follow. So we could reframe this argument as follows. One, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God wouldn't permit suffering without a good reason. Two, I cannot think of such a good reason. Three, therefore there isn't one. Four, suffering exists. Five, therefore an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God does not exist. Right? Now, framed this way, I'm going, number one, yes. Number two, Yes. Number three, no. Number four, yes. And number five would follow if the other four were true. But number three is my problem. Therefore, there isn't one. I can't think of one. I cannot see a possible reason. I don't know, right? It's the claim because the answer to my earlier question is I don't know. Therefore, there isn't one. That's the big problem that human beings have. And that is why philosophers would largely say the logical argument from evil, as distinct from the probabilistic one, which some of you will know of, the logical problem of evil doesn't work because premise three isn't true. It isn't the case that the fact that I can't think of a reason means that there is no such reason. So let me illustrate, right? Um, this, This is a perhaps a slightly better way of putting it, right? Claim one. An all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God would not permit suffering without a good reason. Two, I cannot think of such a good reason. Three, my knowledge, however, is hugely limited. Four, suffering exists. Five, this is a mystery. Now that is how most people prior to the modern era would largely have thought about suffering. They would have said, and many of them did in many ways, listen, human beings are so finite and fallible and prone to bungling and misunderstanding that it wouldn't really be that surprising, would it, if something like suffering and divine goodness were compatible and yet I didn't understand it. Because most people had a, if you want to be fancy about it, an epistemological humility or the capacity to say, I don't know, and that's okay. Because I wouldn't, would I? Even very smart people. Whereas in the modern era, in the last 300 years or so, there's been a much stronger pressure upon modern man to explain everything. And said, we've figured out how all of this works, and therefore for us to say, I don't know, maybe there isn't one, strikes us as a bit of a cop-out. And yet, 
if there was an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God, I would simply expect that there were some things he knew that I didn't. In fact, by definition, I would know that unless I was omniscient as well. So let me illustrate this with you, okay? Let's say I go into my conservatory and I cannot see my dog. This is a picture of my dog. So my dog, beautiful, huge golden retriever, size of a lion pretty much. He's a very large dog. He's literally oversized. His name is Zindel and I'm a big fan and my kids love him and he is literally oversized in the sense that his back is too big for his body so he failed as a guide dog and got given to us because we have autistic kids and they, charities do that sometimes. So it's lovely. We have a huge dog. That matters for this story, right? I go into my conservatory, which you can see there from my kitchen, and I go in and I cannot see my dog in the conservatory. And my wife, Rachel, shouts downstairs, Andrew, do you know where Zindel is? Is he in the conservatory? And I open the conservatory door and peer in. I can, with a lot of confidence, shout back, no, Zindel is not in the conservatory because if he was... I would be able to see him. He's that large, right? I've got a sofa. I've got a random jar of Christmas sticks, which my wife likes. I've got a table full of Thomas the Tank Engine trains. Nothing else. So if there was a dog the size of a lion in my conservatory, I would be able to see him. So I can, with great epistemological confidence, assert to my wife, no, Zindel is not in the conservatory. But now let's say that I go into my conservatory and Rachel shouts down, Andrew... Is there a sandfly in the conservatory? A sandfly, you might depend, we call them different things in different parts of the world. Sandflies, or you might call them midges, or you might call them noceums. That's in America, that's what they call them. I love that. A noceum, because you never see them, right? They're just invisibly, almost invisibly small little gnat type things. Very annoying. They know the things which buzz around in clouds. When you can't, you can never see one, but if they're all together, you can see them, yeah? So now let's say Rachel comes down and said, by the way, I'm, for some reason, I'm, you know, I've, my histamine is up or something. I don't want to go in the conservatory if there's a sandfly in there. Is there a sandfly in the conservatory? What is the honest answer I should make on opening the conservatory door? Well, the honest answer is certainly not yes, because I can't see one. But neither is the honest answer no, because I don't know if there is one in there, because if there was, I wouldn't be able to see it. So the honest answer I have at that point is, I don't know. Is the dog in there? No. Is the, is the sandfly in there? I'm, I'm not sure. Because if he was, I wouldn't be able to see him. Bill Murray, one of my favorite tweets I've ever seen. You know the comedian Bill Murray on Twitter? It's great fun to follow. Bill Murray just tweeted one day a couple of years back, there is literally no way of knowing how many chameleons are in your house. I just thought that was such a great remark. I thought, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Could be a lizard disguised as a clock, a lizard disguised on my carpet, who knows? And actually, there is something of that in the problem of suffering. How many chameleons are in your conservatory? I mean, he's kidding around, right? Because they can't really disguise themselves as flaws, or maybe. But how many sandflies are in your house? Don't know. There's no way I could tell. Because if there was one, I wouldn't see it. And the logical problem of evil, as expressed as I began, assumes that the reason for suffering, if it existed, would be like a big dog rather than like a sandfly. And I don't think you can claim that at all. In fact, I think there's good reasons to think that instead, the answer to the problem of evil would actually be like a sandfly. It would be something you couldn't see because God is all-knowing and you are not. So I would assume there were things about the world that I couldn't understand and he did. That's not a cop-out. That's actually a genuine understanding of the limits of human reason and the very meaning of the word omniscience or all-knowing in God. So if God is infinite and all-knowing, I would expect him to know some things I don't, and I would expect the reasons for suffering to be like sandflies rather than like golden retrievers. So that is a response to the logical problem of evil, quite simply. That's why saying, I don't know, does not lead to the conclusion, therefore God doesn't exist. You clear with me so far? Okay, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm following this, or I'm not following this, or I've still got questions, or just say something, right? Interact with somebody, just to wake yourself up for a second. It's hot in here. So, final, final bits, right? Done, done three things, or four, four things, really. What's the problem, which we already knew? What's the short answer? What's the logical problem of evil? And then now, we're going to land on the one that in reality affects most of us a bit more than the other two. The logical argument from evil doesn't work, ultimately. But for many, and I think for most of the people who wrote objections in the survey we did as a church, and probably for most of you, the chief problem is actually not a logical one. It's an emotional one. 
is the problem of standing, in your case, in a time of sung worship, praising God and telling him how good he is, while knowing that some of the things that are happening in this world on his watch are deeply, deeply painful for many people, including many of you. You might happily agree with what I've just said about the logic. You might say, that's true. I concede. I cannot make a logical proof that God doesn't exist. To be honest, if I could, everyone would have seen it by now anyway, and they haven't. But I don't think that that's not where I'm at. Where I'm at is saying, logically, I see it. But emotionally, I find that so hard that following God is a massive problem for me. Or, if you're not a believer in Jesus here today, following God for me is something I'm never going to do because of this problem. I think some people would say, say what you like about mystery, but a loving God would never ever allow a child to die in their cot when I had bonded with them and cared for them and breastfed them and loved them and given my life to them, and then I wake up one day when they're 15 months old and they're dead. You can't can't weasel out of this with your theological syllogisms. This is just too raw for that. And to be honest, I think that kind of statement has as much emotional power as any I know of. It's huge. All right, so I I just think it might be helpful in that context, because I get why people would say that. So I just think it might be helpful for a moment just to personalize it and say, this is why I feel like I can talk about this as well. Right? I'm not, this is not a suffering top trumps. I know I have not suffered anything like as much as many people, but I just, I think I lead a reasonably normal life in this world in many ways. I think I experience the kinds of sufferings that other people do. And so, you know, I went through the time of being bullied at school and I had two of my uh, family members commit suicide. And one of them committed suicide and killed his daughter as well in the same, in the suicide attempt. And then that had happened, and then another family member committed suicide as well a bit later, with whom I was quite close. And then close family friends, who are actually godparents um, to one of our family, uh, went off as missionaries to a part of Africa, and one of them was raped, and the other one was shot in the head, and had the side of their head blown off. Um, Serving God on mission, and came back. And I then lived through the normal teenage things, suffering the same kind of temptation as I've shared a bit about this week, and some of the challenges of feeling like, I know this is not what I want to live, but it's also what I'm strongly tempted to do. And I got married, and I'm happily married, and then we had children, and I thought this is wonderful, and both of our children have regressive autism, which means that they basically get to the age of about two, two and a half, and then rapidly lose the skills that they've gained, and they just go backwards. And so my son and my daughter, who now they're six and five, you might have seen them briefly on site, But my daughter couldn't cope with being here even for the day that she was here. Every time she saw a car, she just tried to jump into it and say, go home, go home, go home, and tried to run back because she was so overwhelmed by the process. She had a day uh, when she was about two, uh, two and a half to three, where literally things just were falling out of her head on a daily basis. She, she, one day she, she couldn't make a star shape anymore that she used to be able to. She stopped being able to sing. She stopped being able to talk. She stopped being able to laugh. She just retreated into herself and spent a year and a half losing skills that we'd spent ages going through. And that's been our journey over the last you know, three, four years. My wife and I working out, we've written a book about it actually, you might have seen it, but working out how to adapt to some of those sufferings. And on top of that, obviously there's the normal thing about bereavement in the family and people who you love dying and being lost and relatives getting cancer and friends getting cancer and being, people being unable to have kids and people losing children in childbirth and all of the, all of the normal trappings. Now I'm not saying any of that to say, haven't I had an awful life? I'm actually saying, haven't I had a normal life? Kind of like yours. You're younger than me. You've probably experienced a handful of those things and not the others. Maybe by the time you're 36, you'll have experienced all of them. I don't know. I trust and pray that you won't have, but would find that probably many of us will have experienced many of those things. And I think I'm saying that in the context of a normal life, not an extreme life. I I wasn't at Auschwitz, right? I wasn't in the Rwandan genocide and seeing family members hacked to death with machetes. I haven't seen the worst of it. But I've seen quite a few different types of suffering, and you probably have as well. And in and through those things, I will say this. The only story that makes emotional sense of a lot of those sufferings that I am aware of is the Christian gospel. I can understand why somebody would say, a God that allows all of that cannot be trusted. I understand where you're coming from. But I would also say to you, if you don't have something like the Christian gospel at an emotional level, let's say you can admit that's not logical, it's just emotional, right? It's a visceral thing. Right? But 
Can you see that were it not for the Christian gospel, it's not only that you don't have an answer to that problem, it's that you shouldn't really even be saying it's a problem in the first place. So I'm aware that when I have my griefs and, and sorrows about all of those things, and I bring them to God, I've got two choices. I can bring them to God and say, God, why? Why? And I can, as I have, just lie there in my, on my playroom floor in the fetal position, just almost retching with tears about what's happening to my kids, which I, I have done. And you will have done things like that about various areas in your life. You're just, you feel, your guts feel like they're going to come out. You're so angry and so tired, so cross and so pained and grieved that you're just wailing out to God. And you can do that, but when you do it, you are in that process acknowledging that there is somewhere to take that pain and someone to give it to. You don't have the Christian gospel, and you are saying, to be honest, the world is such that we are a bundle of atoms that collided in a fortunate or unfortunate way, DNA became a thing, cells started, there is no purpose and no ultimate meaning. Meaning is simply what we make for it ourselves. The strong eat the weak, always have, which means that if the Germans kill the Jews and the Hutus kill the Tutsis and anybody else kills anybody else, okay, that's just the way the world works. There's no basis to feel angry about it. There's no basis to feel sorrow even about it. And there's certainly no hope that any redemption will come from any of it. I've got nothing with my pain. I can't process it in any meaningful way except just to sit on it and hope that it fades over time and often it doesn't. In the secular story there is no basis for declaring anything to be objectively evil. There is no divine no to evil at all. Creatures are born, creatures die. The weak eat the strong. There's no reason to say that any of that's wrong. No shoulder to cry on. No hope that it will ever be made right and evil wins. In the Christian story, there is a very clear basis for saying that things are good and evil. Creation is good. Suffering is awful. God enters into our pain in the person of Jesus. He embodies it. He lives it. He bears it all upon himself. Human evil is renounced and then forgiven. Death is defeated. The world is made new. The dead rise and love wins. Now, I'm not saying that that proves that the Christian story is true, logically. I'm saying that that story has far stronger emotional power to satisfy a suffering person than the secular one. Or, I think, than any other available narratives out there. And in that sense, I think the Christian gospel provides far more power to cope with the emotional problem of suffering than the secular story does or any other. It pivots on a God who lives and dies as one of us and knows our pain in order to rescue us and then says and all the dead will rise and all everything as Sam Gamgee says at the end of the Lord of the Rings everything sad will become untrue in fact he says Gandalf what's happening to the world is everything sad going to come untrue that is the Christian claim Tolkien's writing as a Christian C.S. Lewis obviously others I think you get the same actually through Harry Potter as I said the other day that there is actually a shape to the Christian narrative that many of those popular fantasy stories pick up on because they are saying the only hope I have as a person in a broken world is that one day a collision between the big bad and the big good happens the big good wins and all of the bad things that have happened get undone and made right and swallowed up into a glorious future that relativizes any of them Fyodor Dostoevsky, who I think is probably the writer who has expressed the emotional problem of evil the most strongly, right? If you want to see the argument from evil against God made in its most powerful form, you read almost anywhere, you'll find them quote Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov. He does it so well. As a Christian, he writes it better than any non-Christian ever has. He is, it is so gut-wrenching to read this chapter in which... Uh, Ivan Karamazov is stating the objections to God from the suffering of innocent children. And it is excruciating reading. And yet in that same book, the same character is actually able to stand and, men and say to his brothers, representing, I think, Dostoevsky's own thought on it, I believe, like a child, that suffering will one day be healed and made up for that all of the sufferings of this world will become a pitiful mirage and that in the end it will be possible something so miraculous and marvelous will happen that it will comfort all hurts and swallow up all pains and it will then be possible not only to forgive but even to justify everything that's happened. The Christian claim is not that suffering as it currently is is not a problem. The Christian claim, that's not my claim at all. 
My claim is suffering's a huge problem, and if it wasn't, there wouldn't be any need for a gospel. But because it's a problem, and because there is a gospel, and because that gospel involves a God who becomes like us to suffer with us and conquer it, there is hope that everything sad will become untrue, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There is hope that that will happen. And without that hope, I don't know how suffering people make it through the day. I began today by saying that the short answer to the question, why would God allow suffering, is don't know. But when we look at God revealed in Jesus, I think we can say with a lot of confidence what the answer to that question is not. I might say I don't know what the answer is, but I know what the answer isn't. It is not that God does not love us. Right? I don't know why. I don't know why the things that have happened to you and the things that have happened to me have happened. I cannot explain them all. I can explain very few of them. But I do know that they haven't happened because God doesn't love us. Because when I look at the cross, I see a God whose love is not in question. And I look at it and I consider there must be other things about this universe in the mystery of time that I'm not able to fathom fully. And I will, for now, park my doubts and my fears with the only one who truly knows what it's like to suffer with me alongside me and still win. And I can trust him with those doubts and those questions and those pains, knowing that one day all is going to be made new and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That doesn't answer every question. I know that. I've just had 35 minutes and I'll finish just teaching there. Um, but I'd love to be able to take your questions if that would be helpful. So we'll do that for about 15 minutes if you have them. And if you don't, that's fine too. But if you do, just want to head to one of these two microphones and I'll do my best. Um, having done some kind of look at Brothers Karamazov and uh, Lewis in Mere Christianity, they seem to see the problem of evil and suffering as relatively incoherent mm. as it requires a God for them to justify their position. Yes. Now I know existentially that doesn't do a huge amount to answer the qualms that suffering obviously brings but do you see the question of suffering in and of itself like Dostoevsky did yeah. as something that assumes an arbiter a yeah. god to justify yeah, it in the a, first place that's a really good question it's another response we could make um i think it was that do you understand what Rory's saying he's saying the very idea of saying there is a problem of evil assumes that there is some abstract source of good and evil such like god and if there wasn't a God, then you don't have a problem. I think that is very valid for somebody who's wrestling with the problem of evil um, and is, is trying to work out why they feel it. I think the problem is it's not such a good response to somebody who says, I don't have a problem with evil, but you do. So I think it depends what kind of a sceptic you're addressing, to be honest. I think most people feel there is a problem of evil, so that's a very good response. For the people who say, I don't have a problem, you do. Some of my friends are like that. Uh, they say, well, it's not an issue to me. I think often they haven't suffered enough to ha- find the problem, to be honest, in my personal acquaintances. But I think that won't work for everybody, but it does work for some. And it certainly works for those people like that Stephen Fry video that came out about a year ago. I thought, you're angry about some of these things that are happening. And I think if that's true, you are assuming that there is a basis to say that they're wrong. And if there isn't a God, then there isn't a basis to say it's wrong. So where does that come from? So I think it is a bit, often a very helpful extra point to make. Thanks. Yeah. Hello. Um, yeah, um, my dad is currently suffering with a terminal cancer diagnosis, and my brother died last month or two months ago. So the question all my non-Christian friends always ask me is, well, rather than who allows suffering, is what did God cause that? And mm. I always sort of feel that saying, oh no, that's from the devil, is sort of a cop out. So with in that terms, in terms of suffering, because that's not human. I mean, he didn't get cancer from a human doing something to him. My brother didn't die from a human doing something for him. Mm. So does yeah. that... Yeah, it's a huge question. It's a really good question. And thank you for sharing something, given how personally real it is to you. Um, yeah. No, that's a brave thing to do. So I think... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a... a a, di- a difficult answer to a difficult question, okay? So I think that the difficult answer is that there is a sense in which God, as the creator of all that is, and as sovereign over all that is, is in some sense the cause of everything that happens. In a sense. That is, I think there is... That's why I think you're right to say it's just a cop-out to say it's all the devil, nothing to do with God, because I think you can't get God off the hook like that. Because I think... And I don't think God wants you to. I think that's what the cross is about, If God said, I want to create a world in which there's no such thing as pain ever, he could have done that. 
I think that's assumed in a lot of what I'm saying. So to say, is God the cause? Well, in a sense, yes. There is, if you like, there's different types of causes. And you could look, looking into it with Aristotle and so on, the different layers of causation there are and things. There is another very important sense in which no God is not the cause and God is the, the enemy of all of those things happening and he's waging war against them and sent Jesus to the cross in order to undo that and is deliberately healing the world and bringing about good and restoration in it but we're not done yet and one day we will be. So there is, in a sense, the answer to your question, is God the cause of those things, is yes and no in different ways. And that's not a very helpful answer to a skeptic, I know, because I think it sounds like sophistry or wordplay, but it's actually very important because I think if you were to, cons- if you were to say, yes, God is the cause of all, of all suffering independently of other agents, you would Im- have this go- a view of God as an enormous puppet master with a whole bunch of robotic creatures who are walking around the world, slaying each other and bringing about you know, destruction on each other. I know not in the case you're mentioning, but it would apply to other things too. Um, and that would not be a very helpful view of God at all. It's certainly not a Christian one. But similarly, if you said God's not the cause, you would also have problems because you would imply that God isn't ultimately responsible for the world. And he is. So I think my answer would have to be yes in a final sense and no in a direct I'm trying to hurt you sense. And God is in that sense about the process of healing and restoring the world through what he's done in Jesus. And I think holding those two together, though sounds like a bit of a mind bender I think is really important and it has always been as far as I know the way Christians have dealt with that problem wait for the last 2,000 years if it's any it's not a consolation but if it's any consolation what may be worth bearing in mind to all of us the vast majority of Christian thinkers who've wrestled with these issues before the last 50 years did so in a world where this young man's experience would have been true of almost all of you right he is probably unusual in this room for having a parent who has been terminally diagnosed and a sibling who's died at his age. I suspect that's unusual now in this room, probably a minority. But in most of the world, when most of the great Christian texts have been written and most of the Bible was written, that was extremely normal. And people would all have lost people very close to them and still come through wrestling with those questions in the way that you're trying to describe and I'm trying to describe. So I think if that is, I, don't, I know that's not consolation at all, but I think there's a lot of people with you in that. Um, and thank you for the question. I think it's excellent. Um, so my mum is a non-Christian, and she's been through a lot, like with my dad cheating on her, and my granddad having a massive stroke before, like two weeks before Christmas. Um, is she in more danger to suffering? Is, is she in more? Tell Dan- me what, you, what do you mean by that? Like, is she going to have, like, is she, like... I know she's, like, a non-Christian, but is she, like, more dangerous? Like, God not going to help her and save her from... Oh, because she's not a believer? Yeah. No. I don't think so. And I think that's a really good question. You're all hearing the questions, I hope. It's coming through the sound system, isn't it? Um, I don't think so. And and I think think it's quite quite interesting, the way that Jesus talks about um, the nature of God. Uh, so Jesus is saying, actually, your heavenly Father causes the sun to rise and shine on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes rain for your crops to come, whether you're righteous or unrighteous. That the blessings of God in creation of medicine and advances in knowledge and palliative care and many, many... For, ex- for instance, you, you live in the world you do now, you suffer less, like I've just said to that young man. We suffer less than people did 100 years ago because... God in his common grace has allowed people who are Christians and not to develop technology that makes our lives easier and more comfortable and I'm grateful for that and that's true for people whether they're believers or not so I don't think that in this life there is any reason to argue that Christians suffer less than non-Christians and in fact I think if people argue that go too far down that line I think we end up with something very much like a prosperity gospel Jesus heals people and often those people don't believe Jesus is not giving blessing and healing and restoration from suffering and pain as a reward for faith. Now, believers do have enormous comfort in the midst of sufferings, which probably your mother at the moment doesn't have. And that's the difference. That's what's really pretty important. So in terms of where do you take your pain, there's a huge difference. But in terms of how much pain do you experience, I don't think there's a good reason to say that Christians experience less pain than non-Christians. I'm not as far as I can see, if anything, the New Testament indicates that Christians will probably experience more because they'll get all the normal ones plus persecution thrown in. So that would be a 
a stab at an answer. Is that okay? Thank you. Yeah. Um, I have two questions. One is, it's on death. So, um, if like a baby died, would it go to heaven or hell, or like where would it? What would God judge on? And um, if, let's say, there was a tribe in Africa who hadn't heard about Christ, what would happen? Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. So those are two questions. Um, you've probably heard those questions before. So I probably ask them yourself, right? So if a baby dies, does it go to heaven or hell, right? So I, I think at that point, I'd say the answer is, I don't know, but I know God's good. And I trust, for instance, I look at that with my own kids. My own kids, because of their autism, are not really in a position to understand the gospel and to make a profession of faith. And my conviction concerning them is that if I got back today and found that my kids had died during the day, heaven forbid, I would have huge amounts of grief and sorrow to process, but I would not find that one of the elements would be, oh goodness, are they now in hell? I just look at God, I look at Jesus, and I think, Somebody who does not understand the gospel such that they can accept or reject it. I have, can, I have questions, but I certainly don't worry that my kids are going to get sent to hell for not believing a gospel they could never have understood. I don't therefore think that there's a Bible verse to prove that, but that's how I handle it. I just say, I don't know, but God is good. God does what's right, and I don't worry about that at all, personally. Um, it's not a concern. Uh, maybe it should be, but I, it isn't for me. I had an answer that was actually given on this stage a few years back to that question from my friend Phil Moore. He was here. Somebody asked him that. And I think they were asking, why doesn't the Bible say anything about it? And he made a brilliant point, which I thought was powerful ever since. He said, if, imagine if there was a text in the Bible that said, babies who don't believe go to heaven, right? Which is, you know, that'd be neat. He said, you just know, don't you, that at some point in history, some sick and twisted cult would have emerged that was killing babies before they could understand the gospel in order to make sure they went to heaven. And as soon as Phil said that, I thought, that's obviously true. I'm sure that would have happened, and I'm so glad God hasn't revealed it in that sense because of the dangers it would produce. But at a personal level, I don't find that concerning at all. I think the tribe in Africa is in different contexts. I think that is different because people who are able to understand the world and to make logical conclusions about it. And the most helpful analogy I've ever heard on this, which I think is probably the best one that I know of, Francis Schaeffer. He said, imagine around your neck you had a MP3 recorder. It didn't say that because he was before MP3s. Same idea. You had an MP3 recorder around your neck um, that was on the whole time in your life. And every time you made a moral judgment about somebody else, it recorded it. And then at the end of your life, you were judged by the extent to which you had fulfilled the standards of your own moral code. And his argument was, you know that you and I would all be judged negatively by even our own standards. So in other words, we don't have to have heard Christian teaching to know what we should and shouldn't do. We already know it, and we know we don't live up to it. And I think in that sense, the tribe in Africa who hasn't heard the gospel is in a different category to the child who is one, or in the womb, or six and has special needs or whatever, who doesn't understand. So that's how I would attempt to answer the question. We've already got time for two more. So let's do... I'm sorry, because you came a bit after them, so I'm just going to let the next two go. And I'm sorry, guys, we just won't get time to do these all because they're big questions. Yes, madam. Hi. Um, I hope I word this rightly because I've been thinking about it. Um, so obviously, as a Christian, I know God understands my suffering. But um, sometimes when I'm talking to non-Christians, say so things with, like, rape or cancer, you know, they say, but how... Like, Jesus wasn't raped. He suffered on the cross. But how can he know my pain? How can we explain to Christ, like, non-Christians that Jesus can understand their pain if he hasn't necessarily been through it? Or, like, the modern pain, like, genocide that we see today, you know, how does Jesus... How can we show that Jesus can understand that on a level that they're going to yeah. get? Okay. That's a really good question. How can Jesus understand our pain if the specific thing that happened to us didn't exactly happen to him like that way? Um, and there are some good examples, some obvious examples in the sense that he wasn't a woman. So there are things about what it is to be female that Jesus understands but didn't live himself. Um, and I think there's probably a, a, a couple of different responses we need to make to that. Firstly, I think, bear in mind that some of the sufferings that we experience in the world today that might sound like they didn't happen to us actually do happen to Israel and, and, and Jesus in and through them. So he does, And we miss some of those things. Like he grows up in occupied territories and he's oppressed and under persecution. And although he doesn't experience the physical act of rape, he certainly experiences the sense of physical violation, uh, attack, public shaming, nakedness, exposure, humiliation, and dirtiness 
that people who experience rape do. Now, I'm not saying it's an identical experience, but I'm saying that the things that make, and I've, as I've probably already shared, I've actually, I didn't mention, I've got another very close friend of mine experienced rape as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm not talking completely out of the boot, but of course, it's always difficult to know exactly what it's like to be someone else. But I think the feelings that I would see in people who have experienced rape and the feelings that you experience being crucified naked in front of a whole bunch of people are actually very, very similar, although not identical. And so I think a lot of that sense of shame and degradation. I think some aspects of the cross, you see, people say, why does it have to be like this? Why crucifixion? Why nakedness? Why beating, mocking, spitting? Why those things? I think in many ways the cross carries within it an awful lot of what makes human, human life so horrible right down to being betrayed by very close friends and exposed in front of people. So I think that's an important thing to bear in mind, although I don't think that answers every element of it. And then the other is to say that everybody's sufferings are slightly different from each other. And I think for even say, this is in some ways a horrible thing to talk about, but you have two rape victims, they will find solidarity, and yet their experiences will still have been different. There will still be things about their sufferings that were not quite the same, and yet there is solidarity to be found in the experiences that they had. That's meaningful for them to console and share how it felt and how they're able to process and become healed through it. And the same is true, and this is a much sillier, in some ways a much more downbeat example, but I have the same. I have lots of people with special needs children talk to me, and they say, you don't know what it's like to meet me because my kids are schizophrenic or my kids are down syndrome or whatever and yet the way you write or talk implies that you understand a lot of what it's like i think if that's true for humans i think it's certainly true for jesus as well so those two things may help and then final question um you spoke about choices and i think i think that every human has a choice so if you spoke about the baby dying if 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 the baby, if medical te- tests had been done on the baby, it would have died of something. If it died of pneumonia, it would have been because it was too cold. So the parents should have taken the choice to wrap the baby up better or, um, you know, turn down the AC. Or if parents split up, then again, it was their choice because if they knew that they were going to split up, then why have the child? I mean, you're going to hurt the child in the first place, right? Okay, could you repeat the beginning of that? Because they've just turned the speaker up here and I couldn't hear it all. You spoke about choices yeah. and... I think that suffering, the base, the base of suffering has, choices are the base of, of suffering. And it, if you break it down to the nitty gritty of it, it does become your choices. And if, you're, if, if your parents split up, then again, it was their choice. They shouldn't have had the yes. child. And yes. if, you're, if a baby dies, then she, she, he or she would have died of something. You can't, it, I mean, yes. if your medical tests have been done. Yes, that is true. I think it is, it, it is the case. I mean, firstly, I w- it's obviously the case that a lot of suffering, as I would happily admit, and did near the beginning of the talk, a lot of suffering is caused by human choices. I think the, the wider... The, the, to, my, the reason I don't talk the way you have in, in quite that way about you would have died of something at some point is because I find that's of no emotional comfort at all to somebody to whom it's just happened. Although it's true, right? So I, I think it's, it's obviously true. In our day, we risk missing the point but it is the case that everybody's going to die of something and that in fact sometimes people who die suddenly like in a cot may well have experienced far less pain and probably do experience none probably die much more comfortably than many people who live to 80 and then die of some sort of cancer or something else so there's a a sense in which all that you've said is true but I found that that doesn't help grieving parents because the parent isn't so much concerned about the baby's suffering as they are about their own, although that, and I don't think that's selfish at all. I think for me, as a parent, if one of my children died I, in their sleep, I wouldn't, my problem wouldn't be, how could this happen to them, how painful for them? Really, although I wouldn't say it like this, but really the pain would be my end. And so it's actually the pain of loss and grief and bereavement rather than the pain of death itself that is the problem in that kind of an example. And that wouldn't be true if I outlived them and then they died of something aged 80. And that's the reason I don't tend to address the problem in the way that you have, just because I find that for a person who's going through it, it probably wouldn't be very comforting. But you're right, at a logical level, it is true.